0: Now, just before I introduce um, our lovely panellists, I'll just uh, read read the session intro again, just to, to refresh everyone. We live in a world addicted to scandal and drama, but why do women often come off worse than their male counterparts? In a political sex scandal, an older, adulterous male survives whilst a young woman's career is often left in tatters. When a sports star is accused of rape, the accuser often fares worse than the alleged perpetrators, as her life and morals are put under a microscope. Is this misogyny in action? Or do women rush to judge each other while men stand in solidarity? Is this the same pattern that begins in the schoolyard, where the pack chooses who is popular and who has to eat alone? How can we fight the human urge to judge each other? And are there unexpected lessons to be learnt from the boys club? Well, um, to help us unpack these questions and no doubt raise many more questions, I'll introduce our panel. In the end, we've got Emma Jane, who's an academic author and media commentator. Uh, She's currently running a three-year federally funded research project into the impact of gendered cyber hate. She focuses on online misogyny, cyberbullying and digital mobs. Dr Jane spent nearly 25 years working in the print, electronic and online media before she entered academia, uh, where she once went undercover during a Gonzo assignment as a Canterbury Bulldogs cheerleader. (laughs) (laughs) And we've got Charlotte Wood, who is an Australian novelist, the author of five novels, Pieces of a Girl, The Submerged Cathedral, The Children, Animal People, and her latest novel, The Natural Way of Things, which we will be discussing today, released last year, which explores societal contempt and disgust towards women involved in high-profile sex scandals. The Natural Way of Things has been long-listed for the Stellar Awards and shortlisted for the India Book Awards. And finally, we've got Michelle Arrow, who's a historian at Macquarie University. Her research interests include the history of popular culture in Australia, feminist history, and representations of history in the media. Her books include Friday on Our Minds, popular culture in Australia since 1945, and The Chamberlain Case Reader. She's currently writing a history of the 1970s in Australia and is a fellow at the National Library of Australia. Please join me in welcoming our panellists. So, with all that in mind, let me kick it off. First of all, who are these women? that we love to hate and who is the we that's doing the hating? Emma, do you want to start? Look, I
1: think there um, are multiple ways and multiple ways of hating. Um, the two aspects of this that really interest me are the, what I guess my mind first goes to when you think love to hate and there's a kind of like recreational Freud, where we sort of look at celebrities and oh my God, can you believe that muffin top and so on, that's, um, you know, that's interesting. but. But the the hatred that I'm much more interested in is the hatred associated with misogyny. And I think those two types of hate, the people doing the hating and the harm that is caused to the targets of the hate are really different.
2: Yeah. Charlotte? Um, Yeah, I've never really bought, to be honest, the thing that women are each other's harshest judges. I really find that problematic because it implies that men never judge each other or criticise each other or whatever. So we're not allowed to have a difference of opinion with another woman without it being, ooh, bitch fest, you know, cat-fight <laughs> and, and it, you know, we have a whole building full of women who are coming to listen and learn from other women, so it's not an inevitable sort of, um, biological urge that we have to judge each other. But obviously um, there are, you know, there are power structures in our world and sometimes for, for in my book which involves a bunch of young women ending up in a prison, in order to survive in that world some of them are going to side with the most powerful people who are the men. So in that case there are shifting um, allegiances and needs to survive, and in order to survive, sometimes a woman will throw another woman under a bus. But you know, it's within a system that um, works actively to kind of encourage that.
0: Exactly. So it's, it's part of just navigating our, our society, our patriarchy, where women are... Just, uh, only uh, you know, a certain amount of women are afforded a certain amount of success, and so we almost feel like we're putting a position where um, we have to compete with each other rather than with the men. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think so. I'm interested in Michelle's perspective on that in a historical sense. Yeah.
3: I mean, I think one of the things that immediately sprung to mind when I was asked to be part of this session was, you know, this is a question that women have been asking for a very long time, I think, around why are women... Uh, confined to certain narrow roles. You know, I mean, Anne Summers, who wrote the really famous, probably one of the most famous Australian feminist texts, Damned Whores and God's Police, in 1975, she said... We've tended to only give women two roles, you know, across Australia's history, so they were the damned whores, the convict women, the women who were viewed as kind of beyond contempt um, and victims of misogyny and very much viewed through a kind of male gaze and that's the records that are left to us of those women. But then on the other hand, you have the God's police, these kind of virtuous women, the women who are wives and mothers and good women Mm -hmm. and I think historically, taking a long view, you can see that the women who we tend to hate and I mean we as a society, I think, um, are the ones that fall out of that category. If you're not a part of the God's police, if you're not a kind of good, righteous, middle class, white woman, wife and mother, then you send, tend to be seen as other and, and kind of damned whores. And that was Ann Summers' dichotomy. And I kind of think, sadly, it still seems to hold sway in a mm. lot of ways. You know, Michelle, I, I've
1: been thinking about this and I've, I've been reflecting on the fact that I think most of us are now in the damned whores mm. camp. Like, <laughs> I, like, seriously, oh, that's right. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, but seriously, yeah. when you're look at morally conservative yes. women's activists, like if you look at a group mm. like Collective Shouts yeah. who are morally conservative, mm. they on the internet are still being called whores and sluts and cunts and bitches yeah. in the same way that the, the rest of us slutty ones are, <laughs> you know, are being called. So, you know, I was, ref- I was thinking, you know, does that um, damned whores, god, police dichotomy still mm. hold? And I can't think of many who, many, who are the good women, you know, yeah. so we've all mm. been sh- now mm. in that camp. Mm. We you know, ta- one way or
2: another. Yeah. We were talking before the, um, during the week on email and um, and I said, you know, I think really the only way to be acceptable in our society now is to shut up and look mm. sexy. And then Emma said, yeah, but you're not allowed to really look sexy either. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, if you look sexy, you're in trouble. So mm. it is kind of, I think you said, basic invisibility would be the most acceptable Ceasing to exist,
1: also an (laughs) option, but I don't think, particularly with sex, you just cannot win. Mm. Like the way that the system is structured is we have this huge pressure to be always hot all the time, and then if that happens (laughs) on purpose or accidentally, you sluts. You are going to pay for that. You know, I'm sure that, you know, most people
3: here can relate to that dynamic. You just can't win. And I think historically, women have long been um, held to be responsible for men's sexual behaviour. Mm -hmm. So, like the women in your book, Charlotte, they are kind of made victims of you know, not managing men's desires appropriately. And that's mm. what happened to convict women. That's what happened to women during World War II. In World War II, the rates of venereal disease, you know, kind of were going up because, of course, lots of people are having sex outside of marriage. And it was the women who were the targets, the amateurs, the women mm. who liked having sex and didn't want to, um, weren't being paid for it. You know, they weren't prostitutes, they were amateurs. And they were, in some states, locked up when they had venereal See, disease. See, so the this thing whole is, whole is there's just
1: no it. problematic male sexuality that exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's absolutely fine normal natural male sexuality and then there's all this problematic female Mm. sexuality. Like, you know, it's very rare and this is where the whole sex scandal thing Mm. comes in. Time and again we see the woman ostracised, blamed. You know, there's a revenge porn, And sort of
2: disappeared. You know, like, that's I think one of the kind of primal brain things that was at work when I was writing my book is that we see all these public sex scandals and the, and the man has a sort of um, faux punishment but then still goes on to be visible in, in society and, and, and I felt like in a storytelling sense, the woman vanishes. You know, there's all kinds of... I keep thinking about that young woman in Hong Kong with Jamie Briggs and I think, I wonder what's happened. I wonder what's happening to her. You know, and somebody on Twitter said, well, she'll be off to Harding, so, you know, which is the prison, the people that run the prison in my book. But, um it's a sort of, it's this weird vanishing. And, you know, I'm sure lots of those women are happy to, you know, go off and live their lives and I hope they do live their lives and, and that their career paths will ever go along. And are fulfilled in the way that they were on track to do, but a big part of me thinks that's not happening.
3: Well, it's the expectation of shame that goes with that, isn't it? You're meant to be ashamed if you've been that, like the Jamie Briggs incident. Yeah. You know, if you've attracted that attention, there's somehow some kind of soiling. Yeah, it was that very crowded. It was so crowded. Yeah. He
2: was,
4: you know, how could he possibly, possibly?
3: Had not to kiss her neck.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll stay. I'll stay on this 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 topic around sexuality because I, I really think that that is at the heart of of how women are treated and mistreated in society, how they're viewed, and, and you, you were saying, um, Emma, about the women at Collective Shout being quite conservative socially, and yet they still get called names like slut. And does that kind of speak to the whole concept of a slut? It's not even really referring to her actual sexuality and sex life. Mm. It's the threat of being called that. It's the worst thing that you can be as a woman. And is it meant to keep us in line?
1: I think it's a misnomer, like slut-shaming. Like, it's Mm. not slut-shaming. It's being female and having any kind of sexuality at all shaming. Um, So, and I think the word does, you know, the word's being reclaimed, but it's still, Mm. you know, it has huge force. Yeah. Mm. And I, um, well, as that leads
0: into the next thing I want to ask you um, is, is what, what you call the desire-contempt dynamic in that men desire women and at the same time have a, a lot of contempt for us. Yeah, look, I I
1: first heard um, a a friend of mine talk about this and she was the receptionist at a business establishment where sex workers worked. And she talked about the fact that the dudes that went there had this, you know, this desire for the women, but this absolute contempt for them simultaneously. And what I I realised is that it goes much further than just that one... Scenario, And I see that a lot and I've experienced it a lot um, personally where, where there's this, this male sort of desire for women and, uh, paired with a contempt for the woman and her body and her sexuality and so on. Because we see that Charlotte in your book as well
0: with the male guards desiring some of the, the female inmates mm. but at the same time just having a lot of, you know, of contempt and, and hatred and for them. Yes. I and mean,
2: disgust, yes. Absolute disgust for the female body that they actually want. And that's what I suppose my, my girls, that I call them in my book, are so bewildered by this because, and I'm bewildered by it. I don't, I, I would never, I would never understand it. This simultaneous, and it's, and it's a toxic mm-hmm. uh, simultaneous thing of desperately wanting this body that, you know, what what's going on there? What's going on in, in some deep part of a man's brain? Is it fear? Is it shame at, at having desire? Like there's something really complicated and, and weird but the woman's the one who gets punished women's bodies
0: in general are often treated with disgust in you know in our society so if you your hair i think we have your hair grows in any place it's not supposed to anywhere apart from your head basically and Mm. and you know as women one of the most mortifying things that can happen to us is you know if we're on our period and we leak and it shows like so anything that that sort of shows I guess um, our true nature is really reviled, and that, that leads me into a passage that really, um, from, your, from your book, The Natural Way Things, that really hit me hard. And I'm, I'm going to read it out for the, for the audience. Um, it was why she was here. She, so this is uh, obviously about one of the, the, the inmates, the, the girls, that's been taken to this compound because she was involved in a, a high-profile scandal, sex scandal. It was why she was here, she understood now, for the hatred of what came out of you, what you contained what you were capable of. She understood because she shared it, this dull fear and hatred of her body. It had bloomed inside her all her life, purged but regrowing, unstoppable every month. This dark weed and the understanding that she was meat was born to make meat. Um, it's a cheery so, little yeah.
1: book.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: So is this what's driving this hatred of women, this, this revolving that despite
2: everything, I think there is a lot and I, I, I should say I feel like when, when I'm here talking about this stuff, I'm speaking for myself, yes. I, don't, I don't pretend to speak for other women or I'm not a commentator or an activist or anything, but as an artist, I guess, you know, that's where I put all my feelings and confusions about it. And, and I think I have had a lot of self-disgust. About my body as a girl growing up in a world where we just have to pretend we don't have periods, and we, and you know, you go out of your house and there's a billboard that says, "Do you have unsightly hair?" It's like, oh my God, I do! <laughs> and, and and therefore, actually, I am unsightly. I shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't be visible. And. So I don't, I think it's kind of impossible not to internalise, like there is so much industry devoted to making us feel like shit about our bodies in order that we then buy things to cure this terrible illness of having a natural, normal body. And um, I don't, so that character Yolanda has deeply internalised, as I have, that it's disgusting. I am disgusting and there is something contemptuous about me and I understand why you feel it, because I feel it.
3: Okay. And um, so, yeah, you've got I was to just going to say, I think it's related too to the ways that we think about public life historically, really, has been male space, you know, I mean, yes. it's interesting that Australian women got the vote so early but yet women didn't go into parliament until I think 1940-something, and then really you don't see women going into parliament until the 1970s, and what's interesting, and Julia Baird's done some work on this, is that when women went into politics, they had to be, it was almost like a, a requirement, you had to tick it off a list that you would be photographed in your house doing the ironing or doing the vacuuming in high heels or cooking, because there was this idea that if women went into public life, they somehow would be letting all of the other stuff fall apart and they 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 had to show that they could do it all. And so I think there is a sort of thing about, there's something weird about women in public. We still have this thing Mm. that we still want women in public life to prove their femininity and yet we will also punish them for that. So Julia Gillard, of course, the famous empty fruit bowl Mm. was read as, you know, the barren woman, this, you know, kind of metaphor for everything that was wrong with her. And I think we still have that thing of, well, yes, you're interesting and you're in public life, but yet we're going to punish you for that too and judge you to an almost impossible. Standard, and I think you know, probably women and men were both um, culpable in that judgment. It's Is it interesting you're
2: talking about? Sorry, maybe right. taking up space.
3: space. space. That's oh, thing.
1: come on, let's. let's
2: <laughs> I <I've> just realised <laughs>
1: I've got pants on, and I'm still like, you know, like woman shrinking, like, yeah. um, and it's a yeah. thing, like. Academically, you know, there's been empirical Mm. research through time and across cultures, women sit Mm. in ways to try and minimise the space that they occupy, whereas men, in general, (laughs) let it all spread out and, yeah. you know, it's not just about, you know, it, it's more insidious than just, oh, you know, we're being, um, you know... Polite, d- or yeah, ladylike, you know. or whatever.
2: Yeah. There, there Do, is yeah.
1: really interesting work in in um, various parts of psych- psychological research that shows that by spreading out in these, they're called power postures. Mm. If you do that before public speaking, and I actually forgot to do it, which is probably why I was sitting like right this. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do it before public speaking or an exam or whatever, you actually and you, you will have a your your biochemistry you changes
2: up in your brain. Yes, so you it actually. Intuitive. So Um, we should all be be hitting
1: Spreading out, (laughs) arms up. (laughs) Terrible. Uh, So so the thing about taking up space, you know, Mm. um, metaphorically Mm. and and quite literally, Mm. you know, and and I guess it's interesting that women are constantly being told to make themselves, Mm. make their bodies smaller, you know, Mm. weight loss. Take up less space. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: So, (laughs) so Michelle, how... uh, You've mentioned a bit of the history, but how has... Like I'm a big believer that we cannot understand ourselves and our society today if we do not know our history. Um, so how has history shaped the way? I know you say that we're still mm-hmm. stuck in this, um, this, this sort Hall of thing. You know, mm-hmm. But the, 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 the contempt and, and animosity towards women extends beyond sexuality. Like, you know, their studies show that women who show anger in the workplace are much less likely to be taken seriously. So you know, what else is going on there? Because it's, it's across the board.
3: Yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, I think historically, as I said, there is this... I mean, I do find Anne Summers... Even though I think that that analysis, you know, that women are either damned whores or God's police is a little reductive because obviously yeah. it doesn't take enough account into differences around race yeah. and things like that, you know, and, and differences around class. That's very much a white perspective. Yeah, yes. it's a yeah. very much a white perspective. But I still think that there is something depressingly persuasive about that idea that we still tend to divide women in these kind of narrow ways. And I think we tend to still have a fairly narrow set of roles. And it's not even that now that women are, you know, much more in public space, in careers and things like that, it's still those set of roles. It's just even more roles. You know, you don't just have to be a great um, cook and housewife anymore. You still have to do that whilst being a person, you know, perfect career person and all of those things. So I think there's a set of expectations that women maybe impose on themselves as well as, expectations that are imposed by, let's face it, a culture that is still defined around male space, male needs, you know, male um, priorities really. So I kind of, it is even though there have been great changes I think depressingly the the expectations and the kind of roles that women are expected to play and part of that is about a neoliberalist kind of approach to life as well, you know, that we all are expected to make a whole bunch of choices and if we make the wrong choice then we have no one to blame but ourselves Mm. and I think a lot of this stuff around women we love to hate, it's like well, you know, she shouldn't have walked down that dark lane Mm. at 3am or she shouldn't Mm. have got a taxi and you read feminist commentary that says those kinds of things Mm. and I kind of think well, that's not particularly helpful because it's judging women within a very narrow set of choices whereas a lot of choices are made without a lot of choice, you know what I mean, that there are choices that don't actually have a lot of palatable options associated with them. So I do think this idea of it's all choice, we're all feminists, it's like well, you know, there are um, a lot of that feminist commentary I think kind of reinforces those narrow um, kind of stereotypes and and kind of blames women for things that might befall them, you know. Don't but, go to that crowded bar uh, with Jamie Briggs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that, that sort of stuff around... And, you know, I mean,
2: the language around his little press conference was so fascinating. And he said, well, um, we went to dinner where she came willingly to the dinner. It's like... Come <laughs> oh, on. Clearly she was clearly. asking to and eat. And then I think he said, which mm. I paid for. Like, oh, <gasps> okay. oh. And, you know, the crowded bathroom was very, very crowded. What? So, there was all these coded messages in there, like I'm taking responsibility and we're not going to punish her so then I'll send her photo to around all my friends. Um, But, you know, the language was, the the public language, if it isn't, Fucking Mad Witches and Bitches, which is the other language about that woman and the journalist who set out the facts of the story yes. and how stupid they were that our immigration minister described her as a fucking mad witch mm. and then accidentally sent the text to the fucking mad witch, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but... No, that he was a fucking mad witch or anything. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> but <laughs> He was just clumsy. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> witches, bitches and virgins, I think it's still mm. totally the yeah, case. I think
1: it yeah. does.
0: Travel. Well, I think... Um, it's more than just judging women's behaviour. Uh, it's, it's just judging the state of being a woman. And and something we see a lot of, um, I mean, I certainly experienced this growing up and I'm guilty of it. When I was younger, I would take pride in saying things like, oh, most of my friends are boys. I don't really get along that well with other girls. Mm. So, and there's this, and I still see it online in the online space today with girls saying, oh, I'm not like other girls. I like sports and I like men. And, and, and so, you know, what is it that, that is is driving women to have to distance themselves from from other women for mm-hmm. for, for acceptance? I
2: don't know. What do you think?
0: About? I don't distance myself from no, women. So, okay. okay. No, you okay. I'm, okay. okay. I'm explaining uh, just just the phenomena in general because it is out there. And
1: yeah, but there's a lot of like sisterly solidarity. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, of course there is. But we're talking about a, the hatred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I know. It's just that I. You know, so if you look at something like Gamergate, which was a huge um, misogynist shitstorm that kind of started in, I think, 2014 and is continuing indefinitely. And that was like (laughs) heaps of, um, you know, misogynist male gamers, like, you know, harassing and stalking and um, dogpiling on women. And there are a few, um, you know, women associated with that, that bunch of guys. And really, is, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Mm. Like when there's like um, women that sort of actively side, for example, yeah. with men's rights activists and so on. Look, but even nothing, and not, not even necessarily
0: as blatant as that, just, just the little comments of I'm, I'm different to other girls because of X, because I like hanging out with men, men more. I find girls boring and, and childish or frivolous.
2: I reckon that's about that internalised shame of just going, uh, you know, when I was writing my book, so I've got these two male guards and then I I just felt like I needed a woman in there as well on the the kind of guard side and I had this nurse, so-called nurse, who's not really a nurse, but, and I remember being, I, I brought her into the story because I... I remember being in Melbourne and I was at an art gallery and it was around the time when Julia Gillard was getting all the really, really vile stuff that Anne Summers brought to light. And, um, and I saw these, these two security guards were talking, a man and a woman, and the woman was saying, oh, that Julia Gillard, she just disgusts me, Her the way she's playing the woman card. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was riveted and I, I was like, right, so the fact that... And she hadn't even really said anything about it. It was other people saying it on her behalf. It's like, you know, if you don't say anything, that's fine. Just be invisible and put up with it. But if you say anything, it's like you're playing some devious um, trick. Thumb on the scales, you know, (laughs) like you're trying it, it was, And it was clear to me that this woman in the room was trying to absolutely ingratiate herself with the guy. And he was like, Yes, you are being, uh, you know, I can approve of you because we both know that she is a piece of shit. And you, like, it was quite clear to me that this was the only way this woman felt she could get any respect from this guy was by absolutely denigrating another woman. And I don't, I actually don't see it in my own life much at all. But, you know, I see
1: something. women denigrating themselves, like yeah. Charlotte was saying. You know, I think that's what. That's why the, the, the patriarchy is so powerful, like we don't need like a heap of guards controlling no. us and constantly mm-hmm. surveilling us and keeping us in line because we have internalised mm-hmm. that. We constantly surveil ourselves, mm-hmm. we are constantly judge and control ourselves. So you know, when, the first thing actually when I read women we love to hate, like, well well, I don't love to hate myself. Like, my self-loathing has always been greater than any loathing I've had for any exterior <laughs> human. You know, that's a sad mm. reality. And I think that really
2: goes... Mm. Like, it, th- that is true for, if not everyone in this room there. Yeah. <laughs> I know
1: it. one person in this room who is a freak of nature and she does not have it. And I'm <laughs> right. so jealous of her. But it's, I do think it's quite widespread.
0: Mm. Well, we, I mean, we absorb these messages from a young age that, that women are, or girls are meant to be a certain way and act a certain way. And, and I guess uh, when, if you internalise that, that women are, are inferior or a way to um, make yourself feel better about it is to distance yourself from other women and mm-hmm. by extension your, mm-hmm. yourself. Um, but actually, Michelle, I want to go... You've, you've written about um, Lindy Chamberlain. Mm. And now that is... Um, that was a woman the whole country loved to hate as, as well. Yes. And for a very different reason. Um, you know, wrapped up in motherhood roles. Mm. So what... Can you just tell us about your
3: work with that a bit? Yeah, okay. look, I mean... The Lindy Chamberlain case, some of you may not have heard of Lindy Chamberlain because (laughs) you're quite young. It's been that long, hasn't it? So, I mean, it was 1980, so it was a long time ago. Lindy Chamberlain um, was with her family in uh, Uluru. Um, including her 10-week-old daughter, Azaria. I think she was 10 weeks old. She was very small. Um, she was taken by a dingo. The baby was taken by a dingo. Body was never found. Lindy was the few, one of the few eyewitnesses who saw this. She was um, nonetheless accused and convicted of murdering her child. Um, and it was a gross miscarriage of justice. It's one of the most famous miscarriages of justice in Australia and I think probably one of our most famous criminal trials, criminal cases, um, I think only just a couple of years ago the the inquest, the final inquest finally said yes, Adingo did take your child and, and the Chamberlains were given compensation and all those things. But I think what's interesting about the case is that um, it was a national, kind of way of judging a woman based on how she failed to, as Les Murray put it, weep on cue. Mm. She didn't behave in the way that a grieving mother of a small child was meant to behave. She was assertive. She spoke up for herself in the media. She talked about the dangers of dingoes. But she, along with her husband, were judged by the Northern Territory Police as being a little bit strange. They couldn't quite believe that a woman who could speak in this way and look this way. There's a lot of media coverage that we forget now about how attractive she was. And so there was this Sense that if she's an attractive woman at this time when she's dealing with this terrible trauma, she couldn't possibly be a good woman, and a good woman can't be a good mother, you know. And so she was judged for failing to be a good mother, failing to be the right kind of woman who behaved in the right way. And I think it's fascinating that we can still see the way that I think women who don't behave in appropriate ways, the way we think a woman should behave, um, are still judged very harshly, I think. And it was only, I think, when Lindy Chamberlain started to kind of tell her own story once she was released from prison. But I think you would still ask a lot of people in any kind of barbecue and people will still say, oh, no, no, she did it, she's guilty. You know, I mean, it is a very deep-seated kind of horror and fear, I think, around that. And it's interesting that lots of women were also said to have judged her because they were judging her based on their own. you know, experiences of motherhood, but when you read the letters that people wrote to Lindy Chamberlain that are all kept in the National Library, lots of women wrote to her and said, I know because I'm a mother that you could never have killed your baby. So, it's interesting too that there was a misogyny in the accounts of that case where there was like, oh, women of Australia have made their judgment, you know, Lindy Chamberlain's a terrible woman, but actually a lot of women didn't Mm. make that judgment about her. They really believed her right from the very beginning. Mm. But I think, you know, as I said, as soon as I read that, title for this paper, I, you know, for this yeah. session, she was immediately came to mind to me as a kind of particularly yeah. um, potent yeah. example of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Julia Gillard also came to mm-hmm. mind to me and, to, and I guess it, it's, it's a similar sort of thing, different situation, but it's mm-hmm. a woman not behaving the way that a woman is,
3: is meant. Yeah, to act deliberately um, barren. I mean, remember, yeah. you know, like those sort of things are, are, you know, I mean, it's potent. It's a, it's a terrible thing to say about somebody. But this idea yeah. that she's not a mother, therefore she can't be a good woman. Mm. But if she could never be a mother and be prime minister, because everyone would always be asking, of her, who's looking after your kids? You know. But, I but mean, also it would interestingly, be... how that stuff
2: came from all sides of politics, like mm. um, Mark Latham's oh. bizarre attacks on Julie Gillard. Like as a, you know, you could. She clearly doesn't have any love in her life because she doesn't have children yeah. and therefore what kind of person could she be to lead a country, etc. And as you say, if she had children, can you imagine the bad mother routine that would be going on yeah, yeah, exactly. to be a prime minister? Whereas if you're a man, you can never see him, who cares?
3: Well, even Bob Hawke said that about Tanya Polibasek, oh, she couldn't be lady because she's got small kids. You know, it's like, well, Bill Shorten's also got small kids. Like, that's not a problem for him, but it was definitely seen as a problem. Is it all just a
0: trick, like, to basically just make us give up and say, okay, you're (laughs) right, we'll all just go back in the home and that's it, because there's nothing we can do that
2: we can't win. <coughs> so I'm going to depressing. <laughs> say, I'm sorry. Can I just say that we like uh, this I really love talking about this stuff, but I, yeah. I often end up in a kind of spiral mm, of yeah. despair. despair. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> I think and I guess for me writing my book was a way to try and get it externalise yeah. all this crap that and I have had young women writing to me in amazing, amazing letters and, and making videos and all kinds of things about how powerful they felt my book to be for them and, and that sounds very vain but it's been really surprising to me and that that there is a sense of power in, in the end of this pretty bleak story. But it's like I want to seize that power and use yeah. it, and and be allowed to to identify anger and use it as fuel, to do cool, interesting stuff, not to just be slammed down by this kind of bleakness. So, yeah. yeah. I just to say that.
1: Oh yeah, I think the slamming down is going to happen irregardless, Unfortunately, like Misogyny needs like that whack-a-mole game. <laughs> like you whack it down here, and it's just going to yeah. pop up. You know, so we whacked how down. But
2: do well, how do you get through the day then, I guess?
1: Because, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like you know. I only barely do some days. But, like, I reckon that, like, having been a feminist for, like, literally hundreds of years now, <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I just I've, I'm a big believer in sort of micro activism. Like I think mm. it's it's got to be macro activism and institutional change and all that. But just in terms of like just saying no yeah. to to those kinds of you know those little bitchy conversations that pull other women down. Like. I, I quite feel it in myself. I've got friends, you know, they're genetically gifted. Like, it's so not fair. Like, they're normatively very attractive, super smart, and every so often I think, you fucking bitch, you're so lucky. And then they'll go and get a PhD or something. It's like, really? But, you know, you can see yourself having those feelings. and. And you can sort of have a little com- nice, gentle conversation with yourself about it and, you know, even talk to them about being jealous and whatever. But anything rather than the undermining and stuff. Mm. But also, you know, you can, you can let your crazy... What would you call your body? Like, un.
2: Unsightly. Unsightly. Like, <laughs> like, being a bit unsightly from time to time. And I like, think taking those little steps of courage to go, I'm going to take up space. I'm going to... F- Take up space on this train, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. crazy. Well, just, but only in a really quiet way. But to actually <laughs> take a moment to 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 do a little kind of act of very small courage that nobody else will even notice, but you. But it, I think those things incrementally can make you feel sort of much more powerful in your own space in the day.
1: Mm. I think they actually not only make you feel more powerful. I actually think that they can create change on a bigger level. I mean, it's not to say that we shouldn't have... Uh, we need the collectivist feminist action like more than ever, but just on a daily level, like how you get through the day without being overwhelmed by this you know, really tenacious, endless, monster-type <laughs> patriarchy, misogyny thing. Um, you know, there's daily stuff that makes a big difference, and certainly my connections with other women make the world a difference mm. to, yeah. to me in my day. On that that note, I'm just going to open
0: it up for the audience if you've got questions, but I'm trying to make out where the... Ah, there we go. (laughs) Microphone is right there. I had a little... um but just on that, on that related about taking up space while the audience makes their way up, what do you think of these these apps and these articles telling women about the language we use? Something that I often do is to say, oh, I just want to do this and I'm just asking this. And the idea is that it's we are apologising for our behaviour and we're not taking up space. So I think it's think
2: interesting to think about that stuff, but if you go too crazy on it, you're just policing it another whole round of... You know, I was having this discussion with some women who were saying, oh, I always say just, and I always say sorry. And and one of them said, yeah, but I don't want to be an asshole. Like, you know, (laughs) so I I do think it's the apologising stuff is quite, um, can be over the top. And one of my sisters I realised years ago was in every shop she would say sorry as her first word, you know, sorry, could I just have some (laughs) sausages or whatever. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Stop apologising. So I think it's interesting to think about, but I also think, oh, yeah, now we're not allowed to say what we want, you know, So we are gone to like far another away. level of <laughs> language <laughs> policing. Yeah. OK, so I've got, got
0: a, a question on
2: mic one.
5: Um, I just realised I'm about to apologise. <laughs> <laughs> Don't um, do it. I'm going to try and streamline because I tend to babble, but um, I was just sitting there thinking about this, and I, I'm going to try and use public figures so we can all relate to what I'm going to ask, but... I just, I find that I work in the media and I find that I tend to talk about this a lot with people. And I just don't understand why there's this public conversation constantly hating on women. And examples, recent examples I can think of specifically, someone like Taylor Swift, who, even when she's donating $250,000 to abuse victims, is still told that she's doing the wrong thing. Days after standing on top of a stage and telling women to be amazing. And just because she doesn't fit into a specific type of feminism that people agree with. Um, and like other examples is like Vanessa Hudgens, a young girl, Vanessa Hudgens being hated on so much for sending naked photos to a, a boy who was also very famous but there was no conversation about him and she did something that's so normal for sexual expression and development that it's almost boring. Um, I just don't understand why, and I was just wondering what your opinion is on why we constantly do that. And I do think that the, um, conversation's coming from women. And is it simply just because we're so scared that people around us will think we don't agree with their idea of feminism if we don't say it? (laughs) So it's like, is our opinion unpopular if we don't sit there and go, what she did isn't okay? Like, I would never send naked pictures to a boy, what are you talking about? As we delete the photos in our (laughs) (laughs) I just don't understand. I I can't believe we're still having the same argument ten years later. It just (laughs) blows my mind and, yeah, I don't know, it just drives me crazy. (laughs) So I don't know. Just,
1: uh, uh, just on the, the topic of sexting and naked photos on the internet, like this is a new frontier for um, feminism for me. Um, and there's an inquiry, a Senate inquiry at the moment into the, the <laughs> idea that perhaps we should have some legislation that addresses revenge porn. Uh, revenge porn. Mm. You know, so you know, have a relationship, send the nude photos, break up put all the nude photos on the internet, and a very, very high-ranking police officer got up and said, well, if you go out in the snow without clothes, you'll get a cold. If you go on the internet without clothes, you'll catch a virus. Um, You know, it's just exactly the same thing. Completely blaming women for the fact that a, a private thing is distributed without their consent. Um, you know, you say consent in this, you said consent to dinner, you must have consented mm. to everything else I wanted to do afterwards. Um, so, you know, my, my, for me, it's just more of the same, you know, new technology old misogyny.
3: Mm. I mean, I think what was interesting with the Jennifer Lawrence case when those yes. photographs were um, released, and she kind of made the big, you know, okay, she said, please don't look at them. Like, Mm. I don't want you to look at them. I was in a relationship. She didn't apologise for it, which I thought was fantastic. So I think someone as gutsy as she is, you know, I thought that was a really refreshing response. But I agree, it's totally about, well, you know, you don't take the photos if you don't want them shared. And it's like, well, hang on, what about the man who's sharing the photos? Mm. Like, there's no, you know, women are expected to police men's behaviour. Yeah. You know, so it's all about, well, you gave him the photos, you know. I think that
5: was one of the horribly sad things about the Vanessa Hudgens because she yeah. was so young and she was forced to apologise. And that's not only enforcing on her, but enforcing on all her fans yeah. that it was inherently wrong, yeah.
3: which is horrible. Okay. Again, it's thank the you. same old. Yeah, I thank you for strange. that. We've got,
4: more, we've got more questions. Hi, I'm old enough to have been in an office when the Lindy Chamberlain thing was happening, and obviously that means I've been around for a long time. I just was interested that you're using the Jamie Briggs thing as an example of women we love to hate. That woman, you know, even 10 years ago, would probably never have been able to make that complaint. Certainly not 20 years ago and 30 years ago, you know, Mm. that was just the way men behaved. I found it remarkable when I was sitting in my car, you know, at Christmas, listening to that press conference, that he lost his job. I was Mm. just stunned. I thought that was fantastic. Mm. And I just, (coughs) you know, I think think a lot has changed. And and that woman should be able to be anonymous. Mm. She should be able to go back to her life. She shouldn't stay in the public eye, she's a public servant. (laughs) She should be able to just do that, and I think that's what's happened.
2: I agree that it's fantastic that that was the outcome. I just will be interested to see in the long term what happens. And obviously I won't see about her because I hope that she does go on with her life. But I suppose this
4: is my question. Why would you think that the outcome for her will be bad when so much has changed? I know that the outcome for many people has been bad. But so much has changed and, and, you know, to hear it assumed that it will be bad for her, I find that troubling and I don't think it's even true. I, sorry, I, I,
1: sorry, sorry. (laughs) 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 It's just that the the takeaway point I took from what Charlotte said was about the language that was being Mm, used. Like it's true that we have legislation that didn't exist before and outcomes that didn't happen before. But for my money, the language is so, the the language of slut-shaming and victim-blaming is is very similar if not the same. So I I was getting the feeling that that it was the the discourse that you were pointing to.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I, I agree with you and I really, I hope it's right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, a little less optimistic than you, and i wish I wish I was more optimistic, but she she already has been punished. her image she has been leaked. sent yeah, yeah. around yeah. by the people who are yeah. supposed to be caretaking the situation, mm-hmm. and that was a freaking deliberate act mm-hmm. of punishment oh, so yes. to to say that you know that nothing um, that there's been no consequences for her, I think, is a mistake. But Thanks. I take your point. Thanks,
0: Charlotte. Um, we'll get one more from one and then we'll go up to two. One first. Okay.
6: Um So we were talking about, well, you were talking about um, the language that we're kind of reminded maybe not to do, um, like just and I'm sorry and things like that. Um, we were having a similar conversation at some point last year at my women's collective at, from ANU. And um, we were kind of discussing how, like, language in the classroom is very different and how we're kind of encouraged to adopt male language to be heard and stuff like that. And um, we were kind of like, that's a bit shit, because there are a lot of things (laughs) that women do that are really awesome that aren't put on a pedestal, and there's lots of ways that women probably have been socialised to, but whatever, um, manage situations that is something that should be praised and, like, suggested to men that maybe they should adopt that. And I was just wondering whether the three of you or four of you um, have any things that you think that maybe um, men as a collective should listen to um, and take from women as a group?
3: Communication skills,
6: (laughs) (laughs) working in a workplace
3: where, which is, it's quite, I have workplaces that has quite a lot of women in it, but also men. And just sometimes the lack of ability to kind of communicate something. And that's where, I mean, that, as you said, we don't want to over-apologise in our emails. But sometimes, you know, you might need to write a clear email that explains something, that, you know, gets people on board. Those sort of social skills around getting people in groups, getting them to work together. I think women are really good at that, and I kind of think men could do it something away from that, particularly in a workplace that is not just men, a mixed workplace. I think, you know, men really need to work on the way they do that.
2: Can I just make a point about um, the Q&A program and how, mm. you know, there's been that review of that show and it's shown that women are not on there very much and when they are on there, they're not, they don't get nearly as much time or whatever. And it's sort of until now been, well, they have to step up and they have to speak up and they have to push in and interrupt and that's the style of broadcasting. I never watched that show purely because of that style of broadcasting. I find it Mm. abusive, boring, recreationally aggressive and just...
3: Hectoring, yeah.
2: And so it would be really nice if the tone of that could change to, you know, giving space for other people to speak rather than, okay, if you want to be heard, you have to jump in, you know, as much as the men do in a place where they're actively shutting you down.
1: I reckon it'd be really um, beneficial for men to like spend like a couple of centuries like in the position of women like (laughs) as as this is is an experiment, you know, they could like earn 2 million less over the course of their their working lives. They could, you know, have, um, you know, unfortunately they would have to have very high rates of sexual, you know, domestic and physical violence against them. (laughs) Um, you know, n- not adequate childcare, no leadership roles, no, no board memberships or anything, but I think it could be a really good learning experience. <laughs> like, not forever, just for a couple of centuries. Yeah, very generous. <laughs> and heaps of porn made about them <laughs> where they never have any fun. Thanks, Emma. i to my
5: to... Yeah, um, I was just thinking about small signs of positive change and I was thinking about Rosie Batty as an Influencer's Australian of the Year and thinking about um, someone who responded unexpectedly or something that we wouldn't expect in a way... You know, the day after her son's death, she was very um, positive and using her anger and her grief as a real fuel for change. You're talking about Charlotte. And I just wondered whether you thought, the panel, whether you thought that was something that could have happened 20 or 30 years ago Um, with your work on Lindy Chamberlain, and and thinking about the kind of roles or the role model that she has become for many women and, um, and what her role is in future public life. But just whether that could have happened 20 or 30 years ago is a positive sign.
3: I think you're right. It was a really positive sign. And I mean, I think 30 or 40 years ago, the term domestic violence didn't even exist. It was, you know, wife bashing or it was, you know, feminists talk about how they had to create a vocabulary for those kinds of things to give them legitimacy. And I think Rosie Batty refused the role of, of a particular kind of woman in a very interesting way. She didn't, she refused the shame, you know, that kind of was normally associated with that. And I don't mean that you should be ashamed, I mean that that's generally the role that people expect. And by coming out and speaking in such a way about her son, I think she, was a beacon of courage. I really think that was sort of the way she transformed the conversation about domestic violence because she said, it's not my fault. It wasn't my fault. It was his fault, and this is what's happened. And so I do think that is an enormous sign of of positive change. And I think she was, you know, made it her moment in a way that was unexpected. And I think that's why it was so powerful. But it was a really good question. Thank you. Uh, Mike one?
7: Hi. I'm just interested if you have an opinion in regards to tall poppy syndrome because I feel as a young woman um, what I've experienced most in the university environment or just a general environment is if you're successful and openly successful people, men and women alike, like to pull you down for it and I'm just interested in regards to to our shifting kind of terminology in regards to that and if you can comment on tall poppy syndrome in your um, expertise.
1: I just think, like, jealousy at other people's success is, like, naturally occurring yeah, in the human yeah. body. Like, Paul <laughs> Vidal said every time a friend of his succeeded, a little part of him dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I think, I don't even think that's, you Sorry, know, this, he,
2: also, he also said, success is not enough, others must fail. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah, I do think it's a thing, and I don't know how much of a gendered thing it necessarily is. Like, I think it's something that mm-hmm. happens in humans.
7: Yeah I I, I agree with that in in that respect. It's just like I think it's interesting in the way you were speaking about when a woman doesn't fit in a bracket, doesn't fit in one of those brackets and that that we're trying to like encourage these new brackets to form. I think that's where I was getting at maybe in regards to that.
2: Yeah, I don't know that I have anything useful to say about tall huh. poppy syndrome except maybe to... You're a tall poppy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to be cut. <laughs> no, we don't... No. No, no, not a not tall poppy. Um, Her maybe is I, so awesome <laughs> is so awesome. Thank you. Um, I do think, like, as a writer, I will often read other writers and think, oh, my God, they're so good. I can mm. never... You know, it can make you feel bad to look at someone who is far beyond what you how good you think you can be or whatever, that it's unachievable. But the way that I've dealt with that is to try and think, well, what are they doing that I could be doing? How are they doing that? Let me try and emulate that in some way or try to build into myself. I mean, this is just a really little writer answer, I guess, but it's the only one. To try and rather than think, oh, I am terrible because they have success, to try and... Um, internalise just a more sort of growth-oriented mm. look at it, I guess, mm. a long advice. blathering answer.
0: Thank you for that. We're running out of time, so we've got time for one more up on my team. I'll make this very quick, because I know that I'm
8: standing between uh, the end of the session. But one name that rings to bell for me when I think about uh, women we love to hate is uh, the story around Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and for those that haven't seen it, I'd suggest having a look at the TED talk that came out. So she often talks about her stories about how the support around uh, Bill Clinton at the time to support her in this is that went through and trolled through all her messages and her emails for the last two years, trolled through all her wardrobe to find her the infamous blue dress. And um, she played back a scene um, in her TED talk, completely vulnerable in a space saying that what person or woman in her 20s hasn't said something that was horrible, or malicious, or out of turn, that was immature, unspoken, or played an act that she wished she could take back a million times over. And while I don't advocate for her actions by no means, I think there's a part, and maybe I'm at the end of this, to say that I think women are more powerful than they realise. And if we were truly empowered, we could really step into that space and be vulnerable and own it with a sense of humour to actually become who we're meant to be and demonstrate to the men how to own this space. I've worked in corporate for 25 years and I've seen all the CEOs and all the boardrooms play out all the bad male behaviours. I think women can be totally empowered to own the space and demonstrate it with a sense of vulnerability and compassion and authenticity to show the men how this needs to be done.
1: Yeah, yeah, anyway. right.
0: Thank you. Um, so just before I wrap up, um, anything else that one of you wants to add? If not, we've got two minutes. I'm going to ask you really quickly about your time as as a as a cheerleader. What
1: did you? Because I know you wrote. It I'm, wasn't an undercover, like okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm it a little bit it be more funny to send the feminist to go and be a cheerleader, yeah. so she can write bitchy things about. But it didn't che-
0: work out that way, did no, it? No, because they were
1: awesome women and. Um, it was really hard, like, pom-poms are really slippery when you're... Because <laughs> I did perform at Belmore Sports Field in front of 20,000 Canterbury-Baxham Bulldog fans. Wow. And, um And that led to my PhD, which was the kind of, you know, desire and contempt directed at cheerleaders. So it was an awesome experience. Yeah. But, I mean, what you have said before, what you got out of it is that the
0: problem isn't the cheerleaders. It's how the cheerleaders are perceived. It's, it's... So because it, it, obviously you were sent in to do this story with the idea that, oh, she's going to come back and tell us how silly these women are and how mm-hmm. terrible they are and we can so all have a good laugh at their expense. So how did when you
2: didn't do that, come back and trash those women? They didn't care,
1: like, who was I to them? Like, they were back doing their dancing. No, no, sorry, what? I
2: meant the, the newspaper.
1: Oh, the paper. Oh, oh look, I did a, it was pretty funny, like, this, I, I just made fun of myself. Um, I was very, I'm not very physically, well, I'm better than I used to be, but I was very clumsy and I did drop the pom-pom and, you know, the one-size-fits-all unitard didn't. (laughs) So you know, they, I ended up taking the piss out of myself. So they did; they yeah, were fine I was it. Cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I <laughs> a woman think a the woman was getting dissed. <laughs> <laughs> there like, happy. I just, I just, what I
0: loved about it was just how you went in and you it, was, it became a sort of a, a an occasion or an act of solidarity for you with with um, these women that society does often hold you know in contempt. Um, and on that note, we are out of time. So everyone, please uh, join your hands together for Emma Jane, Charlotte Wood, yeah. yeah. Michelle Arrow. Thank you so much. Thank you.